1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of CastingAcross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Well, this is episode 29 of the podcast, so thanks again for listening and downloading. And if you haven't yet subscribed, I would encourage you to do so. And while you are there, uh, please leave a a review on iTunes. Um, Five stars are the best I hear, so go ahead and do that if you think I deserve it. I'm not 100% sure how reviews make my podcast more visible, Um, reviews versus uh, listens or downloads or whatever, but... I know that it works some way. I don't worry about it too much, um, but I would love the podcast to be shared and for more people to listen to it because I want to encourage um, the conversation to move forward. So I talk for 20 minutes, you and somebody else talk for uh, two hours on the way to the stream using what I say as a little bit of a springboard. You can disagree with me vehemently, and I'm okay with that as long as uh, you're talking and uh, and thinking about fly fishing in a, in a little bit of a different way. Today I want to do another Why You Should Fish in a Certain Place uh, edition of the podcast. I've done a few of these already, and uh, honestly, I was totally comfortable throwing out Shenandoah Valley and the Ozarks um, as two of the ones I've done already. The reason being, everyone knows there's good smallmouth bass fishing and brook trout fishing in Shenandoahs. There's absolutely no surprise to anyone. No one's going to book a plane ticket to D.C. and drive two hours simply because I said that. Like, they had, didn't know about it. Similarly, uh, the Ozarks. Everyone knows that's where you go to catch big brown trout on streamers. Everyone knows that's where you go to, to have the Western River experience in the South. Um, so... I wasn't really hot spotting, you know, this idea of um, calling out a fishery and drawing a bunch of attention to it. One, it's me, you know, so I'm not making a huge impact in the world. But also, these are places that are well known. You look at any guidebook, you're going to see these these places as the places to go. So it was with a little bit of trepidation that I uh, wanted to do why you should fish the Cumberland Valley of Pennsylvania. But at the same time, um, you know, you look at any major guidebook, you know, the coffee table books, 50 places you should fly fish before you die, or Trout Unlimited's um, 100 best trout streams, or, you know, fly fishing the mid-Atlantic, or anything like that. All the streams I'm going to talk about are in there, so it's no surprise. And before I get into it kind of too deeply, I also want to say I think that there's benefit in there being awareness of also the downsides of some of these fisheries, some of the struggles that they're going through, because that conservation awareness and the resource stewardship awareness 
are very, very valuable. And I don't say that to, again, virtue signal or say that I'm doing some great service to uh, the fly fishing community or the ecosystems that I'm going to talk about here in a minute. But I think that the more people know about the sensitive nature of some of these fisheries, the, the more we can kind of police in our own heads how we approach them. And uh, also just not assume that because someplace is famous that it's okay, that it doesn't still need work. Um, and also to draw attention to the East Coast. So often the big conservation projects are focused on the big waters out west, but you have a lot of water that gets really heavily used because it is in the middle of some of these major urban areas. So all that to say, that's I guess maybe why I've justified or rationalized why I'm talking about the Cumberland Valley and why you should fish it. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. You should go there. Again, I'm not saying that if you're living in Alaska, you should leave what's happening up there to come down to Pennsylvania. But if you find yourself in Philadelphia, D.C., something like that, then definitely check it out, especially if Spring Creeks at all interest you. Getting ahead of myself. So where's the Cumberland Valley? So look at Pennsylvania, even if it's near head. Do you know what a rectangle looks like? Great. You know what Pennsylvania looks like. Now go and bisect the state. So cut it in half. So if, you know, think about two equal squares. Now about three quarters of the way down that middle line of the state of Pennsylvania, you have Harrisburg. Harrisburg is the capital city. The mighty Susquehanna roars through uh, Harrisburg. Not really roaring, kind of meanders. Um, now if you're, again, looking at the state, if you think of Harrisburg as being a dot, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way down, dead center. Now, if you were to follow a line kind of at 45 degrees and then sloping straight down to the left of that, that's kind of the path that I-81 takes. Um, and I-81 is in the middle of the Cumberland Valley with North Mountain to the west and South Mountain to the east but they kind of curve. It's a little bit um, disorienting after you've been driving relatively north on I-81 through Virginia and uh, West Virginia and Maryland, and all of a sudden I-81 goes from being north-south to being kind of east-west. So this is an area that has incredibly fertile soil. This is beautiful rolling farmland, old stone fences and, and giant red brick barns. Um, and the reason that people farm there is because of the richness of the soil. The geology is limestone and the aquifers and the water table is relatively high. And so that's a very, very brief look at the geology and the hydrology of the area. But those things make for good farmland and they also make for good trout streams. You have incredibly rich stream beds that have nutrients that support great aquatic vegetation, aquatic insects, and consequently the things that eat them, small fish and larger fish, specifically trout. Now the four crown jewels, if you will, of South Central Pennsylvania and the Cumberland Valley from south to north are Falling Spring in Chambersburg, Big Spring outside of Newville, Latorte Spring Run in Carlisle, and the Yellow Breaches in Boiling Spring. Now these four rivers, again, you're going to come across them in any guidebook that you read, either about national trout fishing, definitely in mid-Atlantic trout fishing, and these are going to receive the majority of the discussion of this region of Pennsylvania in a Pennsylvania guidebook. Now these fisheries are not what they used to be. 
at the same time, in the 20-ish years that I've been fishing them, I've seen some changes that kind of demonstrate some good things happening as well as some bad things happening. Now, there's a lot of politics in this. In fact, if you get into a conversation with somebody who fishes this region at, say, a fly fishing show or on a message board or on social media, you're going to get uh, such a wide and varied um, spectrum of opinions on how those fisheries are being managed by local municipalities and the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission, how they fish for different species of trout, how they fish this year versus five years ago versus 10 years ago versus when grandpa fished there, you know, uh, 50 years ago. You're going to have completely contradictory views. And I've even experienced that where I feel like I have a stream figured out and then I realize I have no clue what I'm doing or vice versa. And so it's kind of the mystique of the Spring Creek. And it's also a lot of it is just uh, different people have different standards and different expectations. And the more popular something is, I believe the more polarizing it is. And these Spring Creeks are very, very popular, as I mentioned earlier. A lot of people fish them. These are, for a lot of folks, destination waters because you're within two hours of Philly and Baltimore and D.C. and within three hours of Pittsburgh and New York City. So imagine the amount of fly fishers that are able to go there for a day trip or for a weekend. And they're not remote. You can stay on a hotel on the banks of the Falling Spring Creek, the banks of La Torte and the Yellow Breaches. You know, is it worth doing that? Maybe not for one of the rivers or one of the creeks, but for the whole region, for the smallmouth bass that you have access to, for the brook trout up in the mountains, I think you should fish there. I think it's worthwhile, especially if you're you're close by. So again, what is the distinguishing feature of most of these waters? It is the water itself. It is this spring water that comes bubbling up and that creates these steady flows 12 months out of the year, virtually in every weather condition. And for the three going south to north, Falling Spring, Big Spring, and Latorte, they are spring creeks. And so they are going to have virtually the same flow all the time, uh, the same temperature year-round. What this means is that with a few caveats, which I'll get to momentarily, you know, you can fish it year-round. Now, if there are private property situations or regulations that are passed by the Fish and Boat Commission, or if it's spawning season, you're probably going to stay off the water. You're definitely going to want to stay off the water because although these are very uh, nutrient-rich rivers with great carrying capacities, they're also pretty small creeks. And so a little bit of damage can go a long way. Some fish that are hurt from poaching, some fish that are taken out of the spawning cycle, things like that are going to cause some problems. But with, with those caveats out of the way, you can fish these rivers year-round and you can fish dry flies year-round in a lot of places. Um, these are rivers where you probably can fish streamers, nymphs, and dries depending how you want to and have some measure of success. And some of these rivers, especially if you're going after larger fish, a big rainbow on Falling Spring, a big brown on the Latorte, you know, a, a successful day might be one fish. Um, can definitely get into more than that. I definitely have gotten into more fish than that, lots more fish than that. Um, days when you think, you know, what's wrong? Do they stock a bunch of dumb fish in there until you look at them and realize these are stream-born and stream-bred browns that you just happen to catch on the right day? So those three creeks are spring creeks. Um, relatively narrow. There's spots where they get pretty wide, but by and large, you're talking about maybe 20 to 40 feet uh, wide. 
very uh, slow currents, but very tricky currents. Because of the nature of the stream bed, mostly muddy with rocks, but a lot of aquatic vegetation that undulates and moves in the water, it's not so much that the, the aquatic vegetation is problematic to your drifts, because a lot of times the aquatic vegetation, where it grows, um, in, in the, the thickness of spring and summer shows you where the fish are going to be. So you might have the stream that's 30 feet wide, say, and there's a 5 to 10 foot area of uh, clear current in the middle of it. Um, that's The fish are going to be hanging off on the sides of that. Not every fish is going to be there, but especially if you're new to fishing a spring creek like this with a lot of vegetation, the, these um, indicators show you where you put your fly probably not in the dead center of that 5-10 foot swath of clean, clear water, but um, on the periphery, on the edges of it, because the fish are going to be right up against or underneath those weed beds waiting to ambush um, a bug or a, a bait fish that comes tumbling on by. Um, so, But then you have to deal with the currents because as these waters are moving the they're swirling around as they hit vegetation they're swirling under just really small um, uh, features in the water whether it be a, an old stump or a rock um, but you have a great variation um, both laterally from stream bank to stream bank as well as vertically top of the water down to the bottom of the water. So getting a good drift is really the biggest uh, challenge for a lot of these these fisheries. You know, you might have the pattern dialed in, you might have your approach dialed in, uh, you know, your knots are tied perfectly and everything's going great, but trying to get that fly to go where you want it to go is not easy on a spring creek like this. Um, you find yourself using a lot of weight and then realizing you're using overkill. You take the weight off and now the fly can't go anywhere. Um, there's a couple of places where I know I could go to right now in some of these creeks and know there's a fish in one of these spots, but that fish is there because it's virtually impossible to get a fly into that spot. Your fly will be drifting along perfectly and all of a sudden there is a current that just moves it to the side. And if you put too much weight in it, the fly doesn't even get there. And so these fish end up getting caught by poachers using you know, heavy jigs and worms and things like that. But uh, it, it's great because it allows for challenges for us, refugees for the fish, and uh, it, it is a really neat and different way to approach fly fishing. Now, there's one stream I've left off, and that's the Yellow Breaches uh, Creek, which has a fantastic name. Um, that is, I could tell you about it, but Google it. Figure out why it's called the Yellow Breaches Creek. The Yellow Breaches, at least in its more popular stretches, is a freestone stream, but it has a great influence from that Spring Creek water. In the town of Boiling Springs, there's a pond. It's all spring water, crystal clear enormous bubbling um, spring that you can go check out. Actually, the local high school, their mascot is the bubbler, and uh, their color is purple. So they're the purple bubblers, but you know their football team still is fierce and all those things. But when this all this water flows into the Yellow Breaches Creek, it gives us an influence of cold, clean spring water that makes it a viable fishery, even in the hottest months for miles downstream. And uh, so you have the, um, the, the marks of a freestone creek, a lot of rocks, um, a lot of uh, riffles and runs and pools, 
but you have a lot of cold water, so it has that Spring Creek influence. Now, the cool thing about the yellow breeches is because of that, and because they throw a lot of trout in there, there are some wild fish, um, there are some fish that get put in by a private hatchery, which I always thought were kind of a, um, a step above a normal stocked fish, and then the Fish and Boat Commission puts fish in also. So you have a real variance of fish that you can come into, but um, you can fish, as I said earlier, you can fish nymphs, streamers, and dries year-round. There's places I know if I were to go to that creek today, I could fish, you know, size 22 midges to 14-inch trout, sipping and waiting for that perfect 7x22 uh, drift to come by. I also know there's places I can go and I could nymph um, just pocket water in um, giant, uh, you know, riffle pools and uh, pull up eight inch fish, 18 inch fish. You never know what's going to be in there. And then of course you can swing streamers under the undercut banks. And there um, was a statistic a few years ago that this stretch of the yellow breeches immediately downstream of Boiling Springs was the most heavily fished section of water in Pennsylvania. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but um, opening weekend, you certainly could make a case for that. Um, also, fun fact, you know, Pennsylvania has the most miles of stream water of any of the lower 48. So only Alaska has more um, river miles of water than Pennsylvania does, which is pretty remarkable. It's a very water rich state and a lot of it uh, still has trout in it well what are you going to be fishing for um, by and large think of it this way uh, falling spring has rainbows um, big spring has brickies and rainbows uh, latorte has browns and you can find anything including those beautiful uh, gorgeous coveted sought after uh, palomino golden rainbows in uh, the yellow breeches um, now, is this a hard and fast rule? No, I've caught brook trout, and I, th and I think every one of those rivers, I've caught um, browns in all but the falling springs, caught, and I've caught rainbows in all four of them. Uh, so you're going you're gonna to encounter all sorts of fish, but generally that's, that's what you're, you're looking at. Um, falling spring has its name as a rainbow trout fishery, but there's browns in there, and I've caught browns there. Um, the big spring was renowned for its brook trout fishing for for years and years, for decades and decades, um, until some real mismanagement led to getting it all wacky, and it's kind of had a little bit of a rebound, and they're trying to reestablish it as a uh, as a brook trout fishery. Latorte is a brown trout fishery, very, very famous for its brown trout, and the yellow breeches, again, is kind of a mixed bag. And kind of as I alluded to, a lot of the special nature of these creeks and of the Cumberland Valley is the historical value. Names like Charlie Fox, Vincent Marinero, Ed Shank, uh, Ed Koch, and even people like Bob Clouser and uh, Lefty Cray had an, an enormous impact on the fly fishing world, and a lot of their trout fishing experience came in these rivers. Um, I'm leaving numbers of men and women out, but I think it's important to realize that although the Catskills have the reputation that they have as being one of the birthplaces of American fly fishing, and they deserve it, that you have a very parallel image happening in South Central Pennsylvania. And it's almost more of a blue collar ethic down there. You don't have the vacationing New Yorkers doing the things they're doing in the Catskills. You have guys who are just making their living and fishing in South Central Pennsylvania. So you have things like technique, tackle, fly design, 
conservation, a lot of the things that we take for granted as just being part of fly fishing, we can trace the roots of, the, of, of those movements and of, of those elements back to South Central Pennsylvania, back to the Cumberland Valley in a lot of ways. And if they weren't first, then it was happening concurrently somewhere else. And I think that's important to, to know because I think a lot of folks uh, take for granted a, a lot of what we have. And if we don't know history, um, we could fall back into the into the, the errors that were corrected when when things were, were done right the first time or um, done right and they st when they stuck. And we also should just appreciate what we have. So go fish the Cumberland Valley of, uh, of Pennsylvania, but be a good steward. Again, these are fragile ecosystems. Um, they have the potential for some amazing fishing, but they have suffered setback after setback. You're not going to go there and catch 20 or 50 fish in a day. That being said, it's possible. Um, and I would also say, you know, these are not the only four streams in, uh, in those counties, in Franklin and, and Cumberland counties. Um, there's a lot more water that's worth exploring, but it's definitely not worth exploiting. Um, I've seen how that has taken its toll on some of those small spring creeks and freestone rivers. Um, but these rivers need champions. They need people to stand up for them and uh, be a voice, uh, whether it be to the Fish and Boat Commission, whether it be to national conservation organizations. Pay attention to these waters. They're important. The, the men and women who fished them in generations past were essential in making fly fishing what it is and making today's tackle companies, conservation organizations, and things like that what they are. So check it out. Let me know what you think. This week on Casting Across, I had two articles that uh, are, I believe, worth a read. The first is called Rusty Flybox Memorial Day. The Rusty Flybox was a feature that I had on Casting Across for a while. It was a way to, to share articles that didn't get a lot of traction the first time around. So like in the first year of writing the website when not a lot of people were reading it, I felt like I did some really good stuff, but no one saw it. And so I want to recycle those things and let people see them for the first time or with some fresh eyes. Um, and Memorial Day, holidays are kind of a good day to do that because I was busy. You were probably busy. So, um, But a lot of good reads on there, a lot. Three. Um, one about a road trip, one about me falling in, and one about uh, why I write about uh, tackle so much. On Wednesday of the week, I wrote, Why Only Three Flies? And this is another of those articles that's like, it's unnecessary, but it gets you thinking. Like, if you only had three flies, what would they be? And I make an argument, I believe a compelling case, why on mountain brook trout or cutthroat fishing, you only need three flies. And by doing so, there's an added benefit. So uh, check uh, those articles out on castingcross.com. Today's recommendation is Royal Wolf Triangle Taper Line. This is a, a line that I love. I use on my super soft graphite, on my fiberglass, and my bamboo fly rod. Now, a lot of folks have gotten, of course, back into fiberglass. And I kind of wonder if, if they're just throwing whatever fly line on there and expecting it to perform perfectly. Now, the Royal Wolf Triangle Taper is the best fly line for slower fly rods that I've ever fished. It's not cheap, but it's it's at the same time about the same price as all your other premium fly lines and the stuff lasts. I use it on a two weight and a four weight and I have a couple other ones. It's an excellent fly line. It uh, is durable. It uh, has a profile, a taper profile that will load a slower rod 
at a, a shorter casting distance, which is really, I think, where it excels. Because, um, again, if you're fishing the bamboo and you're fishing the glass, a lot of times, especially for trout, you're not making long casts. So you want to line that can, load that rod, and give it enough oomph to have it really flex and be able to feel it. Because in my mind, you know, a fiberglass rod and a bamboo rod isn't about bending when you catch a fish. It's about bending when you cast. And if we're honest, we're casting a whole lot more than we're catching fish. So check out Royal Wolf Triangle Taper. I have an article which talks a little bit about it. I'll put in the show notes of this page at castingacross.com as well as a link to Royal Wolf's website. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.